Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you here this morning. For those joining us online, a special welcome to you as well. Would you bow with me at this time? We want to go before the Lord and ask a a special uh, prayer blessing and also of comfort. Father, we know that you are a God of all comfort. You are a God of strength. And so, Father, we ask, God, that you would bring comfort and that you would bring your strength, Lord, especially to those who uh, suffered from sudden disaster this past week. We think of many in our country, those in the southern and the central part of our nation, who were devastated by the tornadoes. And so, Father, would you bring comfort to those who suffered, those who have lost loved ones. Bring comfort to those who will spend the next several years rebuilding their lives. And Father, here we are in Diamond Bar, far removed. But God, help us to be reminded as we pray that we don't live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, isolated from others. Father, we are connected even by tragedies like that which occurred this past week. And so God, help us to have a heart that seeks to to reach out, to act, to pray for, to understand that we are part of uh, a plan much bigger than our own individual ones. Help us, Lord, not to think individually. Help us to think on a global scale. Lord, thank you for the reminder, even in the midst of tragedy, that we are connected. And so, Father, would you move in our hearts so that these are not simply words that we say, but help us, Lord, to be your hands and feet. And we ask, God, that you would bring comfort and you would bring your strength. Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, uh, teach us, and transform our hearts so that we would be more like Jesus. We give you this time. We pray in his name. Amen. The title of my message this morning is The Prophets, God's Messengers. The Prophets, God's Messengers. We are nearing the end of our series called Boundless, a study of God's Word. Next Sunday, as you already heard, is Christmas Sunday at our church. We'll have a special Christmas message for you next Sunday. And then the following Sunday, December 26th, we close out the year by closing out our series. It's only appropriate to close out the year with a message on the final book of the Bible, Revelation. So we're devoting the entire message to the book of Revelation. That'll be on December 26th. Today, we're focusing our attention on the Old Testament prophets. Did you know that there are more books in the Bible that fall under the category of prophecy than any other books in the Bible? So this category that we call prophecy has the most books. In the Old Testament, there are 16 of those books that fall under this category of prophecy. There are four what we call major prophets, 
And those major prophets include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then we have 12 minor prophets. The minor prophets include Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. By the way, just in case you're wondering, okay, those two terms, major and minor, those describe simply the length of the books, okay? So they have no connection to the level of importance of those books. So don't think, oh, the minor prophets, they're, they're like lesser prophets. I don't need to know them, okay? I'll focus on the majors, okay? In this case, major and minor, equally important. They just purely indicate how long the book is. So the major prophets are much longer in length. Now, in order for us to understand these books, and by the way, they're not always easy to understand. But in order for us to understand prophecy, we need to know what that term prophecy actually refers to. Okay? Now, most of us, when we hear the word prophecy, we think future. We think of predicting something that is yet to come. And certainly, there is that aspect of prophecy. And that's what we call foretelling. But there's also another aspect of prophecy, and that is simply foretelling. And here's a simple way to distinguish those two terms. Okay? When you have foretell, to foretell is to predict a future event. And again, that's what we usually associate with prophecy. To foretell is to make public. In other words, you're just announcing a fact. You're simply announcing truth. And so in the books of prophecy, those 16 books in the Old Testament, the prophets did both. They foretold things that were to come in the future, but they also foretold. They spoke truth publicly. They pronounced God's truth. They were God's messengers. They were his mouthpieces. And it's important to know that they never spoke on their own terms. They were simply communicating exactly what God wanted his children to know. And so they either foretold or they foretold. And what we may not know is this, that the prophets spent far more time foretelling. In fact, if you read the prophets, over 90% of the time, they are speaking truth publicly. They are foretelling. Again, we usually think of something in the future, but over 90% of the time, the prophets were simply communicating truth about what was taking place at that immediate time and also about God's judgment that awaited those who were in disobedience. And one of the most challenging things for you and for me today in the 21st century is this. Here we are, so far removed from the prophets of old. It's so hard to kind of put ourselves in their shoes because centuries have passed. We don't know a whole lot about what took place back then. And as we've been saying throughout the series, context is critical. We need to know what took place then, right? And you've heard me say this over and over again. Always start with the 
then and there, not the here and now. Okay? We must always start with the then and there. Thankfully, today we have tools in the form of commentaries, study Bibles, Bible handbooks, online resources that will help us better understand the context at that time in ancient Israel, the cultural, religious, historical context of what took place. You know, from time to time, some of you reach out to me and you ask for recommendations on commentaries or study Bibles. And I'll say this, that there are many wonderful commentaries out there, wonderful study Bibles and Bible handbooks. Here's one of my favorite commentaries that I highly recommend. It's the NIV application commentary. And this particular cover belongs to one of the 45 volumes in this commentary set. This one is devoted specifically to the book of Daniel. This one commentary is devoted to the book of Daniel. Now, I know this. Most people are not going to go out and buy an entire 45-volume set of commentaries. Okay? That would be very, very, very costly. But here's what you might consider doing. Let's say you're in the middle of a study with your group here on campus. Maybe you're going through a book of the Bible and that series is several weeks. And perhaps you might even be a teacher for that series. You might consider buying a volume that corresponds to that particular book. And then over time, you can grow your library. And you'll have those tools available at your disposal. Because these commentaries, these study Bibles, these online resources, they are there to help us understand what was taking place back then and there so we can better apply in the here and now. Now, as we think about the prophets, as we think about what took place in the Old Testament, keep in mind, we've been saying this throughout our series, in the Old Testament, we have the Old Covenant. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the Old Covenant. He was a fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He ushered in a new covenant. You and I are under the law of Christ. What we want to know is this now, that much of what we read in the Old Testament prophets they provide timeless principles that are repeated in the New Testament. In other words, in the New Covenant. And you and I are part of the New Covenant as New Testament believers. And so as we read the prophets, though the immediate context, the immediate historical, religious, cultural settings might differ, there are universal principles that are repeated in the New Testament and are applicable for us today. And though things change from era to era, the one constant is always this. Now, I'll put to you in the form of a question. What is God's heart for his children? In other words, what is God's desire for his children? And that's what we're going to focus the rest of our time on this morning. What is God's heart his desire for his children. And we're going to do this. We're going to survey some prophets, including some lesser-known prophets. And so I'm going to begin in the book of Joel. All right, Joel chapter 2. I'm going to give you a few minutes to turn there because it, it, 
it may be a while since you've been in the book of Joel, okay? So whether you have your paper Bible, your electronic Bible, go ahead and I encourage you to turn to the book of Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. The book of Joel comes after the book of Hosea, which follows the book of Daniel, okay? Feel free to use your table of contents as well. So turn to Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. When you get there, just nod so I know that you're there. All right? Good. Thank you. All right. So Joel chapter 2. I'll start in verse 12. Here's the word of the Lord. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. What is God's desire for his children? Well, first of all, it's this. It's a heart of repentance. What God desires from his children is first of all, a heart of repentance. Now allow me to to set the scene for you. After the death of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, the kingdom in the north retained the name Israel. The southern kingdom became known as the kingdom of Judah, after the tribe of Judah. And the southern kingdom of Judah had been devastated by an invasion of locusts. That's the setting here in the book of Joel. Now, I've never witnessed an invasion of locusts. But I'll tell you, as I was reading this this past week, it reminded me of one situation that happened some years ago when Andrew was younger and playing soccer. He was on the field with his teammates running up and down the field against their opponent. Here we were, the spectators and parents, cheering on our team. Next to us, there were other teams warming up, getting ready to play the next game. Everyone's just going about their business when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I turn and I hear the screaming. Little kids screaming. Grown people screaming. I turn and people start running toward us. Someone had disturbed a beehive. And so a swarm of bees headed our way. If you've never been in the middle of a a bee storm, it is frightening. It is absolutely frightening. At one point, we saw this little kid. He must have been no more than 9 or 10 years old. Screaming, his parents put him on the ground, and they rolled him around the ground trying to get all the bees off. I saw a referee running, and he actually fell to the ground. And at one point, as people were just frantically running around, I feel this sharp pain in my leg. I look down, and there are bees attached to my leg. And I tried to pull them off. And it was next to impossible to pull these bees off my leg. 911, fire department comes, the game is called off, people are in tears. I mean, it was quite a scene. And so as I think about the setting 
in the book of Joel. Joel talks about this invasion of locusts. And they come and they destroy everything in their path. The grain fields, the vineyards, the trees, the gardens, everything. The locusts in the book of Joel, it was God's judgment on a disobedient people. And in chapter 2, God calls his children to repent and to return to him. What does it mean to repent? Literally, the word repent, it means to change the way we think. That's the most basic understanding of to repent, to change the way we think. Another way to put it is to come to our senses. In the New Testament, the parable of the prodigal son the wayward son comes to his senses, right? Do you remember? He sees the pigs eating, and he longs for what they're eating. And so it finally dawns on him, wait a minute. I need to change the way I think. I've come to my senses. Have you ever looked back on a bad decision you made at one point in your life, or maybe a series of bad decisions? And maybe over the course of time, you've matured. And you look back, and you think to yourself, what was I thinking? We've all been there. What was I thinking? That's a way of saying we've come to our senses, we change the way we think, we repent. Now, I want to tell you the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Because there's a difference here. Worldly sorrow means that we are sorry because we got caught doing something that we weren't supposed to do. Or we're facing the consequences because we got caught doing something we weren't supposed to do. Any normal human being is going to feel regret if we are caught. That's worldly sorrow. And so it's not so much about turning from sin as it is about trying not to get caught the next time. If you've ever gotten a speeding ticket, my guess is most people, when they say to the officer, officer, I'm so sorry. What they're really saying in their mind is, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I have to go to traffic school. I'm sorry I have to pay a big fine. More often than not, they're not sorry that they were speeding and they broke the law and they are completely remorseful. You see, that's a worldly sorrow. In contrast, godly sorrow is this deep regret that we have offended God, regardless of the consequences, regardless of whether we were caught or not. True godly sorrow means that we change the way we think, which then leads to a change in the way we act. You see, true godly sorrow is a change of heart that leads to a change in action. That is why in the New Testament, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 10, Paul says this. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, in this verse, Paul is talking not only about eternal salvation here, 
in this specific context, he's actually referring also to this understanding that those who are truly repentant will change their behavior. You see, that's why elsewhere, Paul can ask the rhetorical question, as he did in Romans. He said, since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Why else would Paul ask that rhetorical question? He said, since we have died to sin, why and how can we continue to live in it? In other words, those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ have been given a brand new nature. We have a new identity. When we entered a relationship with Jesus Christ, we moved from being a sinner by position to being a child of God a saint by position. Does that mean that we're no longer going to sin? No. Yes, we will sin, but here's the distinction, and this is important for followers of Jesus Christ to know today. As children of God, we are no longer bound to our former sin nature. By position, We are now a child of God, which means we no longer have to sin. You see, before coming to Christ, we had no choice but to sin. Because you and I, we were born into sin. We were imputed with a sin nature because of the result of the fall. Do you know why I know that? Because the one word you never have to teach a little child is the word no. Think about that. Time to go home? No. Time for bed? No. Now, my guess is you didn't have to sit your child down and say, okay, this is how you say no. Ready? No. No. We never had to teach that because we were all inherently born with that. So prior to coming to faith in Christ, we had no choice but to sin because that was our nature. Since we're coming to Christ, we are now children of God. We no longer have to sin. Now we just choose to sin. And God is calling his children back to him, back to repentance. And the good news is we've been freed from the bondage of that sin. Otherwise, what use was the work on the cross? We've been freed from the bondage of sin. And God is calling his children to a heart of repentance to come back to him. God is calling his children also, secondly, to a heart of justice a heart of justice. We just looked at Joel. I want to take you to another lesser-known prophet, Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. I'm going to give you another minute to turn there because it's been a while. Okay? Zephaniah is near the end of the Old Testament, just after Habakkuk, just before Haggai. Some of you are like, thanks, Tim, that doesn't help much. Zephaniah, just after Habakkuk, just before Haggai. Zephaniah chapter 2, 
Verse 3, here's the word of the Lord in Zephaniah. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. When it says here, seek righteousness, what that means is seek justice. Because the words justice and righteousness, they're synonymous. They're interchangeable. A heart of justice is synonymous with a heart of righteousness. To do what is just is to do what is right. And Zephaniah exhorts the children of God to seek justice, to seek righteousness. Turn with me to another prophet, this time to the book of Micah. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Micah is three books prior to the book of Zephaniah. And here's what Micah says. In Micah 6, verse 8, the word of the Lord says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. Let's stop there. Micah was a contemporary of another Old Testament prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah is more well-known than Micah. But here's what they shared in common. Isaiah and Micah, they were contemporaries. They prophesied during the same era. And they spoke about the same issues. And specifically here, the issue of injustice. Now, Isaiah, he was speaking primarily to the elite, the upper class, the well-to-do. Micah, yes, he spoke to them, but he was also speaking to and on behalf of the marginalized, the exploited, the less fortunate. He says, It's God's heart for his children to act justly. Injustice was everywhere in that age. Everywhere Micah turned and Isaiah turned, people were taking advantage of other people. They were exploiting other people. They were benefiting at the expense of others. They were discriminating against some and then showing favoritism to others. And this didn't happen just in Micah's day. Later in the early church, James had to address this very issue, the issue of the sin of partiality. That's why later on in James, in his letter, in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says this, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself, You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, as lawbreakers. The royal law has been somewhat of a theme for our church for the past 22 months, hasn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. We've witnessed so much turmoil in our country. 
and in our world in just the last 22 months alone. Injustice is everything the royal law is not. And I have a challenging question that I'm going to ask each of us to ask ourselves, okay? And please don't do this. Please don't project this question onto anybody else. Okay? This question is for myself and for every one of you to look inward and ask ourselves this question. And the question is this. Does my heart look more like the heart of the Pharisees than the heart of Jesus? Don't project that. Just ask yourself that question. Does my heart look more like the heart of the Pharisees than the heart of Jesus? You see, because when Jesus walked the earth, what did his life look like? Well, Here's what it looked like. He was advocating for the most vulnerable, those who were exploited, taken advantage of, marginalized, poor. That was the daily life of Jesus. Certainly, when you open up the Gospels, the one thing you will never see and read is Jesus walking around saying, God helps those who help themselves. I want you to get your act together, and then God's going to come and save you. But isn't that oftentimes our own heart? Does my heart look more like the heart of the Pharisees than the heart of Jesus? And, and too often I try to justify that type of thinking in my own life. You know, I try to give myself the benefit of the doubt. And by the way, who doesn't like to give themselves the benefit of the doubt? Who doesn't like to rationalize and justify their own actions? Well, here's the thing. The royal law is taking everything that we like to do for ourselves and then doing it for others. That's the royal law. Everything we like to do for ourselves and then we do it for others, not at the expense of others. When we love our neighbors as ourselves, we want the best for them. And let's face it, it's so easy to love those who are like us, who look like us, who think like us, who talk like us, who vote like us, and who like us. It's so easy for me to like those who like me. That is not the royal law. The royal law is doing all those things for the person who could not be more dissimilar in all those regards. I'm going to talk much more about that during our Christmas services. There's a third desire of God's heart for his children. A heart of mercy. A heart of mercy. 
I'm going to take us back to Micah chapter 6. Look at verse 8 again. Micah says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy. The word mercy is such a uh, deep, rich, profound, and hard-to-define word. In the Hebrew, it's the word chesed. And this word chesed is, is best defined, even though it doesn't give us the perfect picture, it's best defined as God's loyal and unchanging love. Throughout the Bible, the picture of walking with God is always synonymous with trusting and obeying Him. The word chesed is it's it's this word that has layers of compassion and kindness and forgiveness and faithfulness and loyalty. It's just an incredibly deep word. And we are called to love one another with the same type of chesed love that God has for us. The reality, though, is oftentimes members within the same church find themselves at odds with each other. And this was happening in the Corinthian church, and it happens in the church today in the 21st century. We've all been hurt or offended by others at church. I've been hurt, and I've hurt others. I know that. We've all been offended and hurt by others within the same body of Christ. When fellow church members are at odds with each other, here's what often happens. Here's the progression. The tendency is to, first of all, ignore the situation. All right, we kind of have a phrase for it. We kind of sweep things under the rug. Let's not deal with it out of sight, out of mind, okay? No conflict. I don't see it, but it just piles up. So eventually what that means is it grows, and when we don't deal with it, then we don't only ignore the problem, we start ignoring the person who is the problem in our eyes. And so what often happens is in the same church, you have people walking around the halls and the patio ignoring each other. And sometimes that even leads to, well, I'm tired of ignoring you. I don't want to see you anymore. So I'm going to go find another church. That's the reality. That's the reality in every church. And then what happens is, then that makes an impact on the rest of the body. And so things start to fester and grow. And what makes it so much more painful for us today is the fact that social media reminds us of those divisions. So maybe you had a fallout, a falling out, and then you see a post from that person, and then that stirs up all kinds of uh, emotions and resentment. And then you have friends who then either like that post or comment on the post, and that makes you even more resentful. This happens, and this is real, and this is happening within the body 
of Christ. As followers of Jesus Christ, and as part of the family of God here at Ephraim Church, please don't forget that we are all on the same team. We are all on the same team. And all too often, members within the same church, we treat one another like the opponent. And that deeply hurts God. We're all part of the same family. Now, I don't know about your family, but I do know this much. Most families are far from perfect. Can I ask, uh, any perfect families here? Can I see your hand? Okay, any? Okay, Whew, I didn't think so. I'm not going to ask you the next question, all right? I was going to ask, okay, any dysfunctional families here? Because, you know, there'd be too many hands, all right? <laughs> all right, thank you for your honesty. Every family is far from perfect. That includes the family of God. And God calls us to live with a heart of mercy because he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't run from us. He stays loyal and faithful. He's compassionate and kind. Our common bond as a church, as a family of God, is Jesus Christ. You know, beyond Jesus, the person sitting in front of you or behind you or across the room from you, they may share nothing in common with you. But that's okay because we have the common bond of Jesus. And God desires his children to have a heart of mercy and to live in fellowship with one another. And finally, God desires a heart of humility. A heart of humility. I want to take you one more time to the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, we learned earlier from Zephaniah that God's children are to seek righteousness and humility. In the New Testament, we're given that same encouragement. Remember, we said the timeless principles we often read about in the prophets, they are reiterated in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And what I think is pretty amazing is both James and Peter. In the New Testament, they quoted from the very same proverb from the Old Testament when they said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the who? The humble. Both James and Peter quoted from Proverbs 3, 34 in their respective letters. God desires a heart of humility. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about this subject, especially in the last 22 months. I've had a lot of time to think in the last 22 months. And here's what I've concluded. The opposite of humility, yes, it's pride, but I also think the opposite of humility is entitlement. Because entitlement and pride go hand in hand. I've been thinking much about that subject. When we operate from a spirit of entitlement, 
What happens is, ultimately, our witness is less effective. You see, as I think back to the past 22 months, and I keep saying this, we are not out of it yet. We are not out of it. It is devastating families here in our church. As I think back on the last 22 months, at times I've been saddened when I think about the fact that too many in the kingdom of God, both individually and collectively as churches, have operated from a spirit of entitlement and not out of humility. You see, because if all we're doing is seeking our own self-interest individually or as a church, then are we truly being the best neighbor we can be? I'll talk even more about that in our Christmas services because we have a model in Jesus Christ to follow. God's heart for his children is to operate from a spirit of humility, not of entitlement, not out of this sense of my own right. So I believe if we as a church, and and, and if, if I can say this, I'm so thankful for our church because I believe we are operating from that mindset. And you've shown that. And it's been a long 22 months. But you've all shown that. So I appreciate you. And I thank you for that. Because we want to be the best neighbors we can be. That is how we will be the best witnesses for Jesus Christ. I want to leave you with the following theological terms. These two terms, one you're familiar with, the other you maybe you haven't heard much of. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is correct belief. We know that. Orthodox. You want to be orthodox in your belief. And I believe those within the body of Christ, we aspire to that. And oftentimes in our circles of these churches that we associate with, we, we, we love that. Our evangelical cir- circles, we love orthodoxy, correct belief. Correct belief must always result in correct action, orthopraxy. And the prophets, when we look at the prophets, We see God's justice, His love, His very high standards. And those same standards were reiterated in the New Testament. And you and I are part of that New Testament law, the law of Christ. God's standards remain just as high. And so His desire for His children, both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, is to remind ourselves that since we are holy, We are to be holy. There's a difference between trying to be holy in order to become holy. 
We are holy by nature. So God calls us to live in light of our holiness. As we do so, as we move forward with a heart of repentance and justice and mercy and humility, then we will learn to be like Jesus. And that is God's desire for his children. So this week, may we heed God's word and let correct belief lead to correct action. In other words, let's just be like Jesus this week. Amen? Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for the reminder through the prophets of your holy standards and your holy calling for your children. And thank you that we have uh, the perfect model, Jesus. And so all we have to do is look to the life of Jesus. And if we follow the life of Jesus, then we cannot go wrong. So help us to be like Jesus this week. We pray in his name. Amen.